1: Good morning everybody and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go Go. You are listening to 3RRR, I'm Dr Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy, you've got us now for an hour. It's a pretty special show, we're pretty excited here because it is the 50th anniversary since the landing of two humans on the moon back in 1969. In the studio with me is Dr Linden.
2: Good morning Dr Shane, how are you? I almost
1: looked at you and called you Dr Lauren, but she's (laughs) to (laughs) your left.
3: (laughs) Too many L names. Too many L names. I
1: know, I get confused. (laughs) Thankfully Laura's not here because yeah. um, that freaks me out when all of you L's are all in the same room. How are you both? Good,
2: very good. Probably not as good as you though. How excited are you about today? Well, I'm a
1: bit excited. I think it's I great. Bet you are. So um, one of the things that's interesting is that we're, we're very lucky because on the phone, hopefully, uh, if my phone is working, we have Holly Griffith from NASA on the line. Holly, can you hear us?
4: Yes, I can. I'm here
1: excellent now i 'm just going to turn you up a little bit. Um, I was just saying we 're excited here because it 's the fiftieth anniversary of the, the moon landing and, and I did some calculations, and I could be completely wrong here, but I, I think i 'm not um, about a few hours ago, fifty years ago, the craft actually landed on the moon, and a, an hour or so from now is when Neil Armstrong will actually exit. Um, the craft and, and sand on the moon for the first time. So we're kind of in a weird sort of little zone at the moment between those two yeah. things happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're
4: right. Your, your calculations are absolutely right. I think they, they take the first steps in about an hour and a
1: half. So. Yeah. So it's kind of nice to be in that uh, zone. They, they must have been super excited. I mean, my, my understanding is it took about six hours after they landed before they could get out because in order to get all their gear and everything ready, it was a lot harder to do in the spider than it was when they were doing the training back at NASA because everything was sort of laid out, I suppose, on tables and that in NASA it was yeah. nice and easy. Yeah.
4: Right. 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 And you know, they had just landed so they kind of had to, and it was a kind of uh, crazy landing. You know, if you, I don't know if you know the story, but when they landed, they only had about six or 10 seconds of fuel left. So, um, yeah. So between that, you know, calming down a bit mm. and, uh, and talking to mission control, it took, you know, it took a little while to get everything configured.
0: Yeah,
1: it, it's interesting. You don't often think about that part, but the, the landing by Neil Armstrong was quite quite extraordinary. Anyone who's actually had a look at the, or listened to the audio of that, it's worth doing because they didn't quite hit the target they were aiming for, did they?
4: Right. No, they didn't. Um, when they went to land, I think they saw that it was a little, there were a, little, a few more craters than they originally uh, assumed would be there. And so they were trying to find a nice, flat place to land and if you actually watch the recent Apollo 11 documentary that came out which is fantastic by the way I recommend it to everyone yep. a lot of uh, new footage was uncovered um they show Neil Armstrong's heartbeat and it's just you know completely off the charts it's, you know it's spiking as they're trying to find a place to land and they have basically 10 to 15 seconds of fuel left so yeah it was quite harrowing
1: Yeah. Um, Now, in terms of um, before we didn't do this at the start, but I I want you to tell us what your title is because you sent it to me during the week. But it's only it's going to come out better if you say it because it's just such an awesome title you have there at NASA. Yeah.
4: No, I I don't know if it's awesome. It's just very long um, because it's it's set up by um, you know vehicle and then system and then you know what area of the system I'm working. So there's like operations, there's engineering, and so I'm safety. So um, my title is uh, Orion, that's my vehicle. My systems are ECLSS, which is the thermal and light, life support system. Uh, recently, we have someone in our group leave. So now I'm taking on some of the electrical power systems uh, responsibilities, and then I'm in safety and mission assurance. So I guess if you, it's NASA, Orion, uh, vehicle Systems Engineer for EECLIS and EPS in Safety and Mission Assurance. I know. It's, it's a Imagine putting that on an email, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's pro- you know, your email signature like that. <laughs> so I'm trying to shorten it as much as possible. But that's the official technical title, but I don't ever use it.
3: <laughs> Holly, it's Lauren here. I'm just intrigued, obviously, with that big title. What, what was your background? What did you study to get into this area?
4: Uh, my degree is uh, Mechanical Engineering.
3: From university, yep, that's Great. my university
1: degree. Fantastic. Yeah. Now, Holly, if we, if we just crack back a little bit to the um, before we get on to the New Orion program, in terms of uh, the 50th anniversary in Apollo and so forth, I mean, what does that mean for you there working at NASA? Are there, you know, their special um, disco nights or something? I mean, what, what exactly do you do to celebrate such a monumental <laughs> success for NASA? Uh, there's tons of
4: stuff going on. There are a lot of people from out of town here in Houston. Um all this week at work, the, the parking lots, you know, the visitors' parking lots have just been completely full. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the local bars, local, um, you know, the Space Center Houston, which is our visitor center, is having a big thing. A lot of, you know, hotels where people are staying are having big things. And then, you know, of course, local bars and things like that.
1: Yeah. How, how did you go last week? Uh, uh, our listeners wouldn't be aware, but we were originally we, we were going to interview you last week, but there was a hurricane barreling down towards you. Yes. Had How that pan out?
4: Yeah. Uh, well, that actually what um, it ended up going east uh, to, uh, closer to New Orleans. It didn't hit New Orleans. Um, but we have a lot of family in the area that it did hit. So mm. not only were we worried about the potential effect of it hitting us, But we told a lot of, you know, friends and family that they needed a place to go and that they could also bring their pets. Um, They were welcome to stay at our house. Right. So, you know, it wasn't just us. It was we were worried about other people, too. So we're actually on vacation and we ended up cutting our vacation a day short to come home just in case we needed to prepare for any of that.
1: Yeah. Well, it's good that uh, it's passed and, and we're able to talk to you this week now. Let's um, move on to your uh, work with the Orion craft. So, can you just give people a bit of a, a rundown of what Orion is? Because I, I suspect some of our listeners are aware of this particular program, but it hasn't had the sort of the news that things like the space shuttle program and so forth has as yet. So, tell us about Orion, what the what the goals are, and and the parts that you're working on. So, the ultimate goal of Orion
4: is to be well, it's a replacement it for the space shuttle, which uh, was retired in 2011. And its um, its ultimate goal is to be able to be a very kind of versatile capsule that can go to the moon or can go to, the, to Mars. It can be a, a long-term, uh, you know, habitat. Not really habitat, but because it will have other things attached to it. But the capsule that can do, you know, go to different places and, and not remain in just low-Earth orbit. So along with Orion, we're also creating the SLS, which is the Space Launch System, Yep, which is a big rocket. I don't want to say somewhere to the
1: Saturn
4: V, but in terms of escaping, um, you know, low Earth orbit, it can do that. Yep. So Holly, that's,
0: that's
2: Holly, the ultimate goal. Wow, Holly, it's it's Lyndon here. That surprises me that Orion is designed to go both to mo- the Moon and Mars in lots of different places. Because I imagine that you would need different specifications to deal with different types of journeys. Is
4: that a hard thing to do? It, well, it is. I mean, it, so right now we're focusing on the moon. Um, and that's kind of where we are. And then, you know, we'll, we'll do modifications to like say the service module or any other things that we would need to go to Mars. We'd obviously have, you know, those additional components as needed. So we're doing studies of some people in say engineering areas are doing studies of what we would need to go to Mars. But right now, and my, you know, job, official job, every
1: day i'm just working on going to the moon mm. and in, in terms of the the orion capsule i mean it, it when i've seen pictures of it it looks very similar to the vintage apollo stuff how much how much is it based on that that older technology and design very
4: much very much um it i mean a specific design or technology i don't I don't want to say it's that same technology because obviously, mm. um, in terms of electronics, we've come a lot farther than you know the, the 1960s. But it is—it's very similar, and it—it it is that way because NASA was very constrained whenever the shuttle program ended, and we had to start a new program because um, NASA is very controlled by politics, and so the people who had things going on uh, in state you know, that would make things for the shuttle program. They wanted, it's called shuttle-derived hardware, because we didn't want to, you know, rock that boat, so to say, too much. So we kind of, we have a lot of shuttle-derived hardware in the, uh SLS or Space Launch System, like we'll have boosters and we'll have something similar in a turtle tank. So we were directed, you know, by by Congress, not really by engineers, to, you know, we have to use these components. And so we kind of had to take what we were given are directed to do and see you know here's what we have to work with so this is this is what we can do based on that direction
2: and how much international collaboration goes on here i was fascinated by this space thing it seems i know that you know there was the space race 50 years ago and there is a lot of every nation kind of wants Mm -hmm. their own space agency australia is no different but how much international collaboration goes on in developing this technology
4: If you'd be surprised, or maybe not, uh, but we're working a lot with the European Space Agency, or ESA. ESA is doing a service module, which is what one of my uh, you know, job duties because of the life support system. The service module is going to hold all of our consumables, which include water, oxygen, nitrogen. So uh, ESA is entirely responsible for the service module. Mm. And so, so we work a lot with, uh, ISA countries like, um, the Netherlands, uh, France, Germany, Italy, mm. mostly. So, yeah. So, a lot of international collaboration, which, we have a lot of very early meetings. Morning. Yeah, I bet. And, oh, because time, though, right? Yeah.
1: We don't know what you're talking about, Holly. Um, the, um, the the testing you're doing at the moment, what what are you actually up to in terms of Orion? Like, what's the current sort of testing that you're doing in terms of the production of the craft?
4: Lots of testing. Um, vibration testing, thermal testing, um, electronic testing, you know, things when you're, the uh, different electronics and the circuits and the, you know, what kind of circuit protection we're going to be using. Um, if it can handle uh, the vibration testing on, if, you know, on launch, there's going to be a lot of vibration. So can everything handle that? Uh, thermal testing, you know, when you ever get into space, especially on the moon, it, it would be anywhere from negative 200 degrees, and this is Fahrenheit. I don't know how that would transfer, but negative <laughs> 200 degrees Fahrenheit to positive 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So. You know, we have to test every component that's on the vehicle, pretty much, to make sure, especially vibration, because it's all going to be subject by the same amount of vib- vibrations. Mm-hmm. But to make sure that you know, it can handle the thermal um, um, deltas that it's going to be subject to, and then of course also the electronics. You know, we could have to make sure that every every piece of equipment. You know, if we if it requires so many um, amps for so the say to turn on you know, that it's not going to trip some
3: kind of circuit protection somewhere. Yeah, Holly, I'm really interested. You're obviously doing a lot of testing for the, the Orion itself and, and how it will work mechanically. How about the people? Um, so, are, are your astronauts, you know, starting to train already, or is there something that's just ongoing all the time?
4: Uh, both. Both. Um, because we do have astronauts still. Uh, some are still remaining from the shuttle program. Some are... Um, you know, already going to ISS. Mm -hmm. And so we're the first crew to go, I want to say will probably be from astronauts that we already have. Mm -hmm. And so therefore they've already been through a lot of the the basic training in terms of just space travel in general. Mm -hmm. Obviously, of course, you know, this this vehicle is going to be a little different. So we do have mock-ups already and they've been doing some training, you know, like uh, human factors types of things. Like can they sit in the seats comfortably? Can they reach the switches, pro- you know, properly? Can they, um, if they, you know, move around or there's no sharp objects, there's no weird smells. I mean, you, you know, it sounds kind of really deep in the, in the weeds, in the details, but those are things we have to think about. So, yeah, so we do already have some astronauts who are training in that capacity to, even though it's still somewhat the early stages, I mean, we're, now we're targeting 2024, but to make sure that, I mean, the vehicle is, is built towards, you know, something that a human could to tolerate, but um, also getting them ready for when it is ready to fly that they'll also be up to speed in terms of, you know, where everything is located and, and the procedures and things like that. Mm.
1: Holly, you, you mentioned there 2024. I mean, that's not very far away, four years. Is, is there a plan for us to do something similar to what happened during the Apollo days where, you know, for example, Apollo 8, did um, an orbit of the moon Or several orbits of the moon um, Before, as you know, as a, as a Pre-staging to the actual landing is, is that going to be the the Pathway going ahead, do you think? Or um, are we just doing that one shot We'll head out there, we know how to do it We'll land on the moon first time mm-hmm.
4: Originally and, and I say originally because This 2024 date is something that uh, Is fairly new um, It's a few months old uh, But I'm, I'm going to say before that uh, we were originally scheduled to go in 2028 uh, hmm. with humans, and so we had it was called Exploration Mission One, and that was going to be a an uncrewed vehicle, and it was going to do something similar to Apollo Eight, where it just you know kind of went around the moon and it came back, and we were going to it wasn't going to be built to just or, or configured exactly the same way as it would if they did have a crew. Okay. For instance, it wasn't going to be bringing any, any oxygen, you know, because we would have just something that would simulate the weight of oxygen, but we didn't need that because there was some, not going to be the people on board. So we were going to do this uncrewed mission that was just going to fly around the moon and then come back and test like the, uh, the SLS, the rocket, because that hasn't been tested completely yet in terms of going up into space. Um, and so, so, so yes, we were going to do that. And then the second mission, we, EM2 Exploration Mission 2, which is now, they've all been renamed Artemis 1, Artemis 2. Um, that one was going to be, you know, to the moon, and then we were going to have people, it was going to be crewed, and we're going to not stay there for very, very long, but, you know, test some things out and then come back. And then I think from there, the plan was just kind of a wait and see, but getting uh, on money. But hmm. we were going to... um to keep going after that and then do something more permanent now since we've gone to this 2024 plan we actually have this uh this gateway i don't know if you've heard of gateway
1: nope, thing nope. in
4: mind which which is okay which is kind of to set up like a space station around the moon and that way we could um we could maintain more of a permanent presence on the moon mm-hmm. using that so that's the new plan right now and so we have uh we have contractors working on, like, a Lutheran lander, for example. And so we're, yeah, we are taking those steps to go back. So we'll see, we'll see how things unfold because, of course, it always depends on money.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to hold you to the 2024 target. Hopefully, you'll get there in time. <laughs> no, um...
4: don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my fault.
1: <laughs> yeah. um holly thanks so much for chatting to us today it's um it's great to you know to hear about some of these programs going on especially on on today you know when it is that 50th anniversary and to hear so much excitement in your voice about these new programs and how they're all going and and um no doubt australia will play its usual role of um you know relaying a few transmissions here and there for you as as we did 50 years ago so great talking to you and we'll keep in touch
4: all right,
1: thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Holly. Okay, bye-bye, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye.
4: Yeah,
1: that was Holly Griffith from NASA talking about uh, the new Orion program. Sorry about the quality of the the connection there, folks. It was a little rough, but um, hopefully it was still... It's exciting reasonable. to yeah. talk
2: to someone from NASA, even mm. if the audio is a little bit sketchy. Yeah. They must be so excited over there at the moment. I wonder if they're getting any work done or they're just eating <laughs> cakes every day. Well, it's,
1: it's, it's quite interesting because, you know, one of the things that uh, is not always discussed is, you know, there's some sombre elements to this program as well because a number of astronauts died during the original pol- Apollo phase, you know, on, and, and in particular, you know, three of them on the launch pad which must be the the worst possible way for to see your friends die it's Mm. not like you're you're in the rocket halfway to the moon or something you you Mm. literally were just doing a, a, a boring test yeah and you know so this sort of stuff does come up but it's um it's you know what happens when you rush yeah, you know, mm-hmm. they rushed through a lot of things. They were forced to meet a deadline that was extraordinary. But you know, of unlimited funding and mm. you know, some so people.
2: what do you, what does that mean, you think, for this twenty twenty four? Well, thing it's then interesting. Changed.
1: So it's interesting to hear Holly talk about the um, this idea of more permanency around the moon because you know many people would argue that with Apollo, some of the problems of Apollo is it was designed around that one goal, and that meant that a more permanent presence in space wasn't sort of thought out mm. because that's not what it was designed to do you know this awfully big rocket was designed to do one thing and it wasn't designed to set up an international space station for example or other things you know and the shuttle program was Mm. was used for a lot of that so um hopefully in this the design will be very long lasting Mm. you know around the moon then mars and so forth and having that launching off um point because you know ultimately if we want a permanent presence in space we have to do a lot the interesting thing for me is the just the human factor, and Lauren, you asked this question, but mm. you know how that—how do we actually get people to survive in space? Mm. It's really hard. Yeah,
2: not yeah. only yeah, physically, but also mentally. Yeah,
1: I'm going to do a story a little bit later about this, and it's—it's it's on you know the the muscle degradation that occurs and how fast it happens. You got this one too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exciting. We're going to talk about <laughs> yeah. this. But, you know how fast it happens, and it's incredible yeah. how quick it actually mm. occurs. So you know, keeping people alive in space is a big deal, and the International Space Station does this well because it's got so much room mm. up there. You know, they have exercise equipment. And so forth to keep you going, but still, you know, you'll often notice when when these guys and girls come home, they are putting wheelchairs when yeah. they get off the recovery ships. And, and
2: with you know. all the stuff that's gone on in the last few weeks, it's online about the all the different components and the minutiae of you know living in space and getting up to space. I read an amazing tweet thread yesterday about bodily waste and how that's mm-hmm. dealt with in space and how they d- did this big long design about how they deal with we and poo essentially in space mm. before mm. they had female astronauts and mm-hmm. then they. Said, yeah. Had to redesign their system (laughs) and all these crazy different things that would have had teams of people figuring out right. How are we going to deal with that <laughs> yeah. without yeah. it stuffing up systems? Yeah. And oh, it's, it's amazing.
1: Yeah. And there's so much, there's so much, um, nonsense going around about, you know, like I, I saw a, you know, one of our colleagues sent me a link to an ABC report during the week, which was on the, the moon landing fake stuff. And, oh, you know, yeah. and um. I was like, Oh God, this, this old chestnut yet <laughs> again, you know, it's yeah. like, it's so interesting that it, it's still hanging around. Mm, yeah. And some of it is so, you know, so trivial to, to sort of get rid of, but it still, it still comes up. And then you'll hear about, you know, NASA spend all this money on, on a, an a Pen that worked in space, you know and the Russians used a pencil <laughs> this is like <laughs> Yeah, but the last thing you want is electrically conductive bits of graphite it. floating around
2: oh, yeah. on a
1: spaceship, yeah. Yeah. you know, like with <laughs> circuitry exposed. It's so sort of like, no, 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 no. You would not use a pencil. <laughs> like, this
2: is, I hadn't even you know, thought of that. But
1: this sort of stuff is, you know, like yeah. if someone had said they invented the felt tip pen, I would go, yeah, yeah that's nice. You know, but <laughs> but yeah, these sorts of things, are, you hear all these stories that go around, it's quite funny. But, um.
3: The, the other one I love too is there's always that conspiracy theory of the flag looking like it's blowing oh, yeah, yeah, in the yeah. wind. Yeah. And, you know, the simple explanation is, that they put a piece of wood, you know, yeah, bit, to, hold like, it. to hold it in yeah, place. Yeah. And, but you know, it's funny that doesn't get the press of, yeah. you know, oh, obviously yeah. there was, you know, a studio with a fan blowing it.
1: <laughs> so it's, it's funny um, because one of my greatest teaching moments in my life mm. um, was when I was giving a talk at a certain high school on why people should be interested in science and to a, to a group of students. They had about an hour and 10 minutes. It was like a double period. And they were, I think they were eight or nine. Mm. And I put up this picture of um, this slide of famous people. People to see who they knew. And one of the pictures was of Neil Armstrong. Mm. And, of course, as, as um, you know, someone once said to me, it's very hard to work out who Neil Armstrong is without the moon in the picture because yeah. <laughs> people just don't recognise the man.
3: Or the space suit on. Yeah, or the space suit on. <laughs> yeah.
1: And so I put this up and I had to tell these, these students who, who it was. And then one of the students, you a know, very precocious young man, he put his hand up and he said, well, I watched this documentary this week and all of that stuff is fake. Yeah, oh and God. I was like, Oh dear you me sure it
2: was a precocious young man, it wasn't a precocious older gentleman, that seems like more <laughs> no, than
1: was it. a that no, was a it was a year eight or year nine student. Uh-huh. Um anyway I thought, okay, this is interesting. So I switched off the projector and I said, you know, how many of you saw this? And it was about a third of the class and thought, Oh, you know, this is a worry. Mm. So, and we we then went through for the next hour every item that they could remember from this documentary, mm-hmm. and we talked through the science of every single one. And it was it was it was fascinating, you know, to to hear them talk through this as a group. Mm. And at the end, we decided because there's a there's a corner cube, what's called a corner cube mirror, up on the moon, and you can you can shine the laser from Earth and it bounces back off this, and you can detect this coming back. And there was actually a famous episode of um, the Big Bang Theory where the you know the people in the you know Sheldon and it And the others did this experiment and they got the signal back and you know, it was a big moment for them. And so you can do this from Earth. Now there has to have been something put up there for Mm. that to work. Mm. And so at the end of this hour, me and the students were talking about this and we agreed that there was only one of two possibilities. Either astronauts put it there or aliens put it Mm -hmm. there. And then we took a vote. It was funny. They all went for the, I think there was one or two who jokingly put their hand up for the aliens. (laughs) It was sort of like hope. They were hopeful. Um, But, but, but they all went for, for the, um, the astronauts. And it was interesting though, when you Go through the science. Mm. And the part that made it such a great experience for me was that their teacher came up to me afterwards and said, I've never seen them so engaged. With science before and I said well to be fair they weren't engaged with science they were trying to tear down someone from a university who they thought you know deserved it <laughs> <And> <laughs> that was fun um and we had some fun with that but it was it was interesting just to see how quickly people can be given the wrong information mm-hmm. and how you know some television shows can look really good and really impressive and mm-hmm. really stoke the imagination you know so mm-hmm. it's good to get the right information out and, of things and
3: that is that it is really basically science too isn't it right yeah. they, they had a theory in yep. their mind yep. and they were trying to prove whether it was right or Wrong.
1: And we went through it and we worked it out and yep. off you go. It was, it was great. It was one of the best teaching experiences I've ever had. It was wow. such a, it was such an engaged group of young kids who, you know, were, were interested. Mm. Um, they were, they had some information, but they didn't have enough science and knowledge behind them at that point to mm. really make good judgments about what they'd been, what they'd been shown. Mm. And it was, it was great to sort of get them on the right page and sort of say, Hey, you know, as much as, you know, and I, I, I've always said when people ask me about whether these things are fake, I say, well, look, basic human nature there were so many people involved someone would have squealed by now yeah, <laughs> yeah. whether on their deathbed or otherwise or mm. someone give enough cash yeah. people just aren't that good at it yeah. <laughs> some people are good at lying but that many people just not that no many way. people can pull it off so yeah to me that's the ultimate answer but anyway uh we we kid but uh we should go to a short break folks and when we come back hopefully we'll be talking with a researcher from csra's the 61 program on some really cool new robotics things that's coming from queensland not quite as far as houston but uh, we'll see how we go we'll be back in a sec Three, triple, <gasps> uh, welcome back everybody you are listening to triple r we are having a big uh, day of science here because of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. Um, although we just have a big day of science every Sunday. Every Sunday <laughs> <to be guests. laughs> <laughs> We don't an excuse. We a just lot need a science today.
2: is just <laughs> out, outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, uh,
1: we're doing more, but we, uh, we do have our second guest hopefully on the phone now. Tirtha, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you. Excellent. Now I'm going to, I don't normally do this, but I don't want to mess up your surname totally. So can you tell me how do you pronounce it? It's, it's awesome. Uh, it's Tirthankar, Shankar, There you go. See, I see. I would have I would have got that wrong. Now you work in Data 61 at CSIRO, yeah. um, and you're working on these amazing sort of robots. Give us a bit of a rundown of of what you're doing, because this is the sort of stuff that would be used around some of the the craft that um, we were just talking to Holly from NASA about.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, as we push on exploratory boundaries into deep space we need to have this kind of uh, infrastructural elements on which to build our scientific basis on now um, a lot of these bases are going to be um, built from scratch and for that we need to have some kind of robots to start the infrastructure but also many of these habitats are going to be um, um, unmanned for long duration, so we need to have robots which can actually go in that spaces maintain the uh, the habitats for human entry and uh, over long periods of time now the the robots that we are trying to look at is, in this operation is basically robots that are able to move and do manipulations in low gravity mm-hmm. uh, yep um, yeah, yeah. so uh in order to do that we need to explore new kinds of mobility so uh, we are very familiar with robots with wheels that go around in our offices which can often turn on uh, turn on lights or turn the door knobs but in space when there is low gravity we need to come up with mechanisms where the robots are attached to the surface of the structure and then are able to manipulate themselves uh, into crevices where there are um, uh, defects that needs to be fixed. So we are looking at uh, robots with high degrees of freedom, um, something like a, a spider, for example, that can go into different crevices of the of the of the house, and you can find spiders in many different places. Um, so we have developed this kind of climbing robots that are able to go up complex 3D structures, um, and we are able to look at the next scientific challenge of how do we while doing manipulation and how we can do repair of these structures. So the, the interesting challenges are uh, how do we design these robots, what kind of materials do we use, what are the control algorithms we need to apply. And this is an exciting uh, field for us and I'm quite excited to work on this project.
1: Yeah now with with something like spiders where the the magic number of legs is 8 is there is there anything mechanical about that that uh, is an advantage or are you looking at sort of things that have you know any number of legs to to attach I- themselves and do work
0: Yeah, so the the spider is basically, um, so we're not being scientific when we call these robot spiders. They can have any number of legs. So the idea is, depending on the situation, we should be able to add and remove legs. So we are building modular legs as well. Now, the advantage of having multiple legs is, I mean, we should call them limbs because Mm. um, in space, Walking is climbing, right? So you need to grasp and move around. So uh, with higher number of legs and limbs, uh, we are able to switch between few of those limbs to grasp the body, and a few of those limbs to do manipulation. For example, if you, uh, for example, if you have a 3D printer-like structure on the robot. Uh, we should be able to have one or two of these arms converting to the, to the manipulator arm which can deposit materials on those, uh, surfaces. And so uh, it's, it's actually a variety of different configurations that are uh, enabled by this structure.
3: So, Tirtha, I'm assuming that um, you know, these robots will be use, able to be used in really high-stress sort of environments, so, you know, obviously out in deep space where people can't be for a long time. So how will they be controlled? Will there be have to be a person inside with, like, a remote, or will they be autonomous?
0: So these robots are supposed to be fully autonomous uh, with a very low um, operational capability Which, from, from the base station, which could be either in one of those uh, space habitats or back on Earth, to give it like high-level commands that, that, okay, so this robot is reporting these kind of behaviors, and so we can turn on and off certain behaviors. But the robots themselves um, have to be fully autonomous, so they have to decide where they're going to move, what they're going to do, how they're going to do it, and then when there are serious um, issues, they need to be able to adapt to them um, and then respond uh, on a status message back to the base station for for us to know what the next steps would be. But mostly they would be self-contained and self-operating and fully
1: optimized. And the, one of the things we've seen with satellites is we've moved from these, you know, gigantic, almost, you know, car-size items down to these CubeSats and so forth. There's been this real miniaturization. Is it similar in this sort of robotics world? Are you, are you looking at sort of one or two robots servicing a, a a particular craft, or is it like large numbers of small, you know, perhaps somewhat differentiated robots, you know, some which do one job, some which do another, but but many of them? Which, which sort of direction are you
0: heading? We are actually um, so we do need large structure. Now, we can potentially build those large structured structures in modular fashion, which means that once those modules are not required, they can convert into individual robots. So if you have a swarm, the swarm can actually come together to form a larger structure to perform heavy duty tasks, but then they can break down into smaller uh, smaller robots that can do small miniature tasks. Now, so that's basically the area which, which is being um, a hot topic right now, rather than having a huge sky crane, we can actually ship bits and pieces of modules that then assemble themselves in in an intelligent fashion um, to, to perform a particular task. So more towards modularity.
2: Well, that's very exciting, but also terrifying, Tether. We've all got kind of the creepy crawlers here a bit in the studio. Um, I was wondering uh, whether you think... You mentioned that there was a lot of components of this. You've got to develop the algorithms. You've got to think about the materials you're going to be using. At what stage are you now in this process? Are you kind of at deployment and testing stage, or is it all a little bit computer-based right now in the theoretical zone?
0: So we are we are actually in between these two. So um, so of course we don't have a space hardware that can be deployed into the ISS or the or sent out to build the lunar um, orbiter. Uh, but but we have prototypes that we are demonstrating in the Earth-like environments. For example, we have a robot called Magneto, which climbs up on magnetic feet. So some of the constraints constraints that these kind of terrestrial robots have are the same that are in the space. And we are testing these capabilities on the ground for, for example, inspecting oil and gas infrastructure or mining structures so that we get an understanding of where the gaps, research gaps and uh, structures are. So we are not starting purely from simulation. And of course, different uh, environments require different kinds of robots to be built. So within the umbrella of CSRO, we have experts in material science, we have experts in technologies, and often there are different uh, projects where we're bringing together experts to solve a particular problem. For example, for the problem of what kind of materials that needs to be uh, utilized for a particular robot that goes into the space, active area of of research in our lab as well as within our our collaborators across different uh, business units in Mm CSRO. So we are building bits and pieces of components that are uh, more than just a simulation as of now, uh, but assembling them and building an infrastructure that can actually go out into the space is down, And we are also partnering with international agencies, for example, we are looking at active collaborations with uh, uh, scientists from the NASA, so they have space-ready hardware that we can test out some of our ideas.
1: Yeah, Tether, look, it's very exciting and I think the, the fact that Australia now has a space, um, effectively has a space agency as well is exciting for you guys. That must help. Um, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people aren't aware that this, this sort of stuff is actually going on and they forget just how much of a space industry Australia actually has. So good luck with the ongoing work. Hope to see some of those um, you know, Australian-designed and built robots uh, working around the international space exploration vehicles in the future and thanks so much for chatting to us.
0: Oh, thanks for inviting me.
1: Um, Folks, we're going to take a break for some
0: music that
1: was... uh Jeez, I just turned off my own microphone. <laughs> I mean, You're I'm too excited, to, Shane. I meant to turn off Lauren's, you know, because... You I know. think mine's
3: always off, isn't yeah, it? Well, it's by default <laughs> off. Yeah, that's it. I, I
1: turn it on at irregular intervals. Um, Try to so, save everyone from... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, actually, the Data61 guys here at CSIRO doing some really cool work, so I think a lot of people just aren't aware of what's, what's going on, but um, hopefully, you know, yeah, well.
2: Genuinely sounds a bit like a science fiction film. <laughs> oh, it does. The,
1: the, the space creepy crawlies on <laughs> oh the outside, of, you know, de- deploy the bots. You know. yeah, deploy the bots, the yeah. swarm of bots. <laughs> the swarm of bots. Because <laughs> uh, the,
3: cool the program is called The Space Spiders Project. Yeah yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely a movie yeah. there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Uh, some important station announcements coming up, folks, and we'll be back in a moment with some news for you, which we've saved till the end of the show. Three, triple You are lifting the, the triple R. We're back. It's almost time to go go. Uh, Lauren had to go to the bathroom, so we needed a longer, longer <laughs> break than normal.
3: Tell but everyone <laughs> in the world today.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is what it is.
3: It is what it is. Uh, You're but, not in space. Yeah, that's true. That's <laughs> true. Exactly. Well,
1: um, it was all good. In truth, I was why they went to the bathroom. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we have some news for you now. And uh, do you want to start, Lyndon? Well, I'm or should we start together?
2: Do you want to start with space? Let's stay yep. in space mm-hmm. for. The moment uh, with this piece, this news uh, science piece that yeah. was released this week, that seems to me to be perfectly timed to sort of be scooped up in the 50 year <laughs> celebrations yeah, of the, the lunar landing, the hoo-ha, yeah. and talking about you know the last two guests we've had, thinking about what we're going to do in deep space. We've talked a lot about the mechanics, mm. about the instrumentation, but mm. as as Lauren said, what are we, what about the people, right? Yeah. And this study was looking at how people are going to deal with travelling to Mars, right? It's a nine-month trip mm-hmm. with current technology. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is the math, chain? I think it was in three, week, three weeks of yep. travelling in a low-gravity environment...
1: You um, lose about 30% of your Yeah, you your lose like a third, muscle, a about third, a third of, of your, your muscle, muscle, muscle strength. In, yep. in your large weight-bearing muscle, mm-hmm. the ones like the big muscles in your legs and so forth that yeah. normally would do a lot of work, yep. when they suddenly are doing zero work... Mm-hmm. Um, they start to lose their, their strength very, very rapidly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you're on something like the International Space Station where there's, there's plenty of room, there's a lot of exercise equipment and stuff, they're designed very specifically to maintain that muscle mass. Mm-hmm. And even, even just a few days, you know, going to the moon was problematic for, um, you know, for the, the original Apollo astro- mm-hmm. astronauts. And, and we've known for a long time that zero gravity ain't so good for us. So mm-hmm. nine months. Yeah, it's a long time. So
2: there's lots of different (laughs) studies looking into how to... Help prepare us. Uh, and one of the things that they're looking at is different types of supplements, mm-hmm. right? Different yeah. kinds of dietary yeah. components that we can yep. try. And so this paper this week, one of those excellent ones that gets it uh, on news.com.au. Red wine can do this. Red wine can do that. <laughs> yeah. Red wine can help you survive longer in space. Yeah. So that's pretty
1: much what it, yeah.
2: what the headline was, well, right? A, 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 compo- yeah, it
1: up, a, component. a component, yeah, you look at component. A component of yeah.
2: red wine yeah. can help. So,
1: Rats. So you know I, I had this image initially of like there's just going to be a really big keg on, on the ship and they'll just all they'll just neck the tap once a day and you know and they'll be fine but no no that's not what we're that's talking not, about no um, It's a protein
2: called. Reservatrol, yep,
0: good I name. believe.
2: Found in red wine and found in blueberries. Mm-hmm. I had blueberries to breakfast this morning, so I was like, <laughs> you take you space now. I'm ready to go to space. <laughs> uh, so this study, it was funded by NASA. It was done by the Harvard Medical School. It was published by Frontiers in Physiology today. Uh, today, this week. And so it wasn't on humans. It was on rats. They had 24 male rats, and they hung them from the roof of their cages in a sort of full floating, I don't know, harness. floating harness right yep. to yeah. replicate being on in 40% gravity or being in low gravity and they fed some of the rats this uh, troll, and they fed uh, other rats just water mm. and they did that for two weeks and mm. then they came back to have a look and see how their muscles were mm. and the results were we pretty impressive, pretty right? Yeah,
1: yeah, pretty astounding.
2: They didn't, uh, well, they did lose a little bit of size <coughs> of the muscles. Mm-hmm. That's what I understood, Shane. Mm-hmm. But the, yep. the muscle mass itself in yep. the calves, and they also tested the grips of the rats, their mm-hmm. little, little grippy fingers. Uh, they didn't lose, didn't lose as much power, like hardly mm-hmm. any. Mm. Uh, if they'd taken this particular supplement,
1: compared to the rats that didn't, compared have, to, it. Yeah. yeah,
2: compared yeah. to the rats that just had water, With,
1: which is which is quite extraordinary because there's no physical activity there involved. Mm. So I think one of the things that's pretty standard and understood here is that this would be a sort of combination therapy type approach so Mm. there'd be some exercise elements there'd be some food elements there'd Mm. be a variety of things that you would have to do in order to maintain you know the strength because it doesn't help you if you get to mars after nine months and you can't Walk around, no, because Mars has about you know point eight of uh, gravity, so you know it's still you you're going to feel a bit of weight there, mm. um, you know a fair bit, and if you can't walk mm. when you you know get out of that, make that first step, yeah, if that first step is a. Faceplant. That's, mm. that's, <laughs> that's not, no. not good. to be great. That's not going to be great. So you need to be able to move around.
3: So I know they've been doing some <laughs> studies where they've got that dome. I can't think where it is. And they've been trying to, you know, um, replicate some of these conditions. So are we going to have to actually do a human study for nine months to be able to prove this is well, safe?
1: Well, they've actually, it's interesting. They've done. So there's been so many studies in mm. prep for Mars for decades now. Mm. And there was, there was one in Russia years ago where they locked these poor That's crew right. up for quite a while. Yes. And um, no one killed them. You know, it's more yep. psychological studies than yeah. anything else because, you know, yeah. if you're, you're in a confined space with a group of people that you potentially after say three months don't like, yep. or, you know, like, you know, Linda and I get along pretty well, <laughs> but you lock us in a room oh the size of an average bathroom for six months. Yeah. We're going to go at each other after, I, yep. I'm, I'm yeah. just speaking for yeah. myself, but it's no, not going to no. no. last long. Yeah.
2: I think it'll be a race. Yeah.
1: He's gonna, who's gonna attack this. <laughs> yeah, and I'll be looking for that airlock. <laughs> She's going out. But, um, but you know, so there's the psychological elements yeah. that they've done a lot of testing on mm. and just how well you can keep people engaged. But in those tests, of course, there's always the element of the doors there to earth. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, until you're actually doing it in space, it's yeah. very hard. But of course, we, we do now have a lot of knowledge around this because we've had people for protracted periods on the International Space Station. So the number of of astronauts who've actually done this sort of work for protracted periods now is getting quite large Mm. and it's interesting because we had terry verts on the show a few years ago who was one of the astronauts who was on the international space station when the soyuz um the russian soyuz delivery system had problems and they were stuck there you may remember there was a period where there was no launches from russia and they were were thinking they may actually have to abandon the international space station i remember asking terry verts i said you know what what kept you going. You know, when you, you're you up there, you don't know when you're coming back. And he said, well, as a sort of in the military, um, no matter what tour you were on, you always had an end date. And that mm-hmm. was something you could focus on. There was an end date. He said, we didn't have an end date, but what we did have was the knowledge that we'd probably never get to do this again. Mm-hmm. So we were going to enjoy every single day we got, mm-hmm. even if it was a lot more than we were originally mm-hmm. expecting. And they were cut off from their families somewhat, but they'd still have video links and so forth. So well, That's yeah. the thing
3: with Mars too, though. You know, They're actually going to... <clears throat> you know, obviously we talk mm-hmm. about the, the actual transport to get there but once you're on mars you're also on mars that's it not coming back
1: and there's quite a delay in signal between Mm. earth and mars so you're not in you know literal contact the Mm. delay is such that you're sending messages and you're receiving messages which is a Mm. which is a problem but the and the isolation you know is is quite extraordinary compared to what has been done in the past Mm. so but keeping people healthy i mean the muscle mass is one thing but the there are other elements that are pretty big. You know, the radiation levels in just travelling to Mars is mm-hmm. something that you know very problematic. But anyway, mm. um, lots of red wine, no doubt, on the trip. Yep, so red wine
4: <laughs> and blueberries. It's good.
1: But this is a good piece of data, and it's it also you know it gives you more data on on people's muscle de- degeneration into age mm-hmm. as well. So True. not just not just you know for spacecraft, but mm. but also for you know your, your muscle deteriorates mm. as you get older. Mm. Um, what's it called? Sar- sarcopenia. Mm. Cool. There's a word I don't use every day. Well done. <laughs> Sarcopenia. Anyway, but people would be very aware of that and that it's a real problem as you age and your muscle mass drops and that's why you often have falls and so forth. So it's very do. important. Sarcopenia.
3: Sarcopenia. Rip
1: that one out from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Lauren, what do you go?
3: Well, I'm going to continue on the ageing theme, actually. So but in space or are we
1: back on no, Earth No, back on Earth now.
3: Okay, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so if you decide you don't want to go to Mars but you want to be on Earth and you don't want to age, there's obviously a lot of interest in, in anti-ageing. Mm. So, you know, obviously both in science and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My Google searches, no. <laughs> um, but no, so there's obviously, you know, there's, there's science and there's probably what I would call maybe some more pseudoscience around anti-aging, but there's a lot of interest in the, in the genes that, that can help people to prevent some of these ageing uh, mechanisms. Uh, there's been a really interesting study that came out this week in Nature looking at one of these particular genes in worms and looking at what happens if the particular anti-aging gene was switched off so the hypothesis was that if you are able to live longer you're probably going to be better at fighting off infections and you're going to be i guess a more healthy worm Mm. Uh, but interestingly what they found is when they switched off this gene the worms actually became worse at protecting themselves against the infections and so it was almost so sorry so if if they if they switched off the gene they became better got that the wrong way around okay (laughs) so so basically the way it works is that the gene protects you and allows you to live longer but it also at the same time sort of halts your ability to fight off infections Mm. and so the interesting thing is that they the genes also linked in with reproduction and so they found that what happens is the gene suppresses the immune responses to infections so that those resources can be used to help the worm reproduce. So, long story short, uh, it's basically suggesting that some of these anti-ageing research that happens at the moment, we need to actually think about what the other implications might be. Oh. So, you might be able to stop something from ageing as much, but you actually might increase the risk of that particular organism getting more infections. And yeah. so, another example of that is um, cal- uh, calorie restriction. So, there's a lot of interest in whether or not if you restrict your calories, you, there is um, some evidence that that can help you with aging. So if you
2: eat less you live longer.
3: Yeah but the problem with that. Your life is worse because you don't get to eat. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But the problem is you're actually also more prone to viral infections they've shown and so it's sort of a bit of a warning sign I guess that you know there is this this um, anti-aging research coming out and there might be some particular therapies but we need to think about what that actually means for other other signs of your health.
2: And is there a reason why Worms were the test cases here. They have this particular yeah, gene or they're yeah. super long living worms.
3: So yes, exactly. So, so they, um, they, these particular genes are very easy to manipulate in these worms. Ah. And it was one that they were actually looking at it in terms of reproduction. So they were looking for another reason. Yeah. And then they, they discovered these other aspects that, with that gene as well. Yeah. There you go. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Well, interesting stuff. Well, we're going to have to, uh, sign off. I think, uh, we have a couple more station, station announcements to play, but, mm-hmm. um, we're very excited about the fact that is the, uh, 50th anniversary of the apollo moon landing this time and folks, in
2: half an hour 50 years ago
1: yep first so, boots on the moon yeah. um there's a heap of good shows around you can go and see folks in fact one of the places you can go and have a look at, at the sun theater in yarraval mm-hmm. they've got heaps of stuff on i've noticed some really good stuff there. there's a great place to go so check it out uh, get involved thanks so much for listening to einstein the go-go thank you linden thank you lauren we will see you again next week i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere have a wonderful sunday